You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. Um, as far as moderators go, um, it was really difficult to find a moderator uh, in, in this particular space with enough knowledge over the past 15 years to understand this issue very well. But we found John Neuer, um, who we've known uh, for a very long time. He's actually been on panels before. And John has agreed to moderate in a neutral and fair way. Uh, John is with JKC Consulting and a senior partner at Fairfax Media Partners. Um, John also used to be the former administrator um, and assistant secretary of commerce for NTIA, um, the organization that Fiona uh, now works for. And uh, John, uh, while he has very strong views on this issue, he has agreed to kind of tamp them down and be a neutral and fair moderator. I'm just going to hand the microphone over to John and let him take it from there. Thanks. I get a theme song introduction as well. That's excellent. Uh, thanks very much, and I want to thank the caucus for convening this timely and important session. Uh, on March 14th, NTIA made an announcement that it was prepared to consider allowing certain contracts with ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, to expire when they run out in 2015. Uh, from that announcement, we quickly moved on to reports of the United States giving up its, quote-unquote, control of the Internet. So I think this panel, if it can serve to bring some clarity to what the announcement really means, uh, what this is, uh, what we can expect going forward, and introduce some of the policy concepts uh, around that, it could be very helpful. And I think we've got an excellent panel to do that. I will introduce them uh, not in particular seating order. Uh, we have Fiona Alexander, who uh, is the Associate Administrator for the Office of International Affairs at NTIA. Steve DelBianco is the Executive Director of uh, NetChoice, an e-commerce trade association, and has been a long-time advocate and commentator on ICANN and Internet governance and these issues. Tom Giovanetti is the President of IPI, the Institute for Policy Innovation, that is a public policy think tank focused on innovation and public policy with a focus on free markets and limited government. Uh, David Johnson is uh, a longstanding expert, lawyer, and law professor in Internet policy and Internet issues. And I think for uh, most relevant for this discussion is going to be a member of the high-level committee at the global multi-stakeholder meeting on the future of Internet governance, which I think we'll find out uh, some more about as we talk. And uh, lastly and not least, we have Jamie Hedlund, who is with ICANN and is their VP of Reviews, who obviously has a, uh, a clear view on this. But I wanted to start with Fiona uh, to take us through what was the announcement on March 14th? Why did you make it? What is its impact with regards to ICANN and, you know, the future of Internet governance? Sure. Um, thanks very much, John. So um, there's been a lot of confusion about the announcement that we made. So just to be clear, what NTI announced on March 14th was it was our intent to transition um, some uh, roles that we'd had with respect to the domain name systems to the global multi-stakeholder community. To do that, we asked ICANN, uh, Jamie's down here for ICANN, as the, uh, the IANA functions contractor, but also the global coordinator of the DNS, to convene stakeholders to develop a proposal as to how this transition might take place. Uh, in this convening role, we've asked ICANN to work closely with um, some of the key internet institutions and customers of the IANA functions, including the IETF and the regional internet registries and others. And in doing so, NTIA sort of established uh, a framework of which we would like the community to work within the proposal. Uh, we identified four principles. Specifically, any transition proposal needed to support and enhance the multi-stakeholder model. 
It needed to maintain the security, stability, and resiliency of the DNS. It needed to meet the needs and expectations of the customers and partners of the IANA services, and it needed to maintain the openness of the Internet. Uh, in, in our announcement, we also made it very clear that we would not accept or consider a proposal that would replace NTIA's role with a government-led or intergovernmental solution. And that's what we did. So we took um, what we considered to be the final step in a 16-year process to privatize the management of the domain name system by asking stakeholders to come together with a proposal of how to uh, take away the, the, the limited role that we uh, continue to have in this uh, space with respect to the IANA functions contract. We did not in any event or any way say we're walking away from ICANN. We uh, work in ICANN uh, very constructively as part of the Government Advisory Committee. All of that will continue. We'll continue to be an advocate for all of these things. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, exactly what it is we announced on March 14th. There's a question of why do we do it now, and I think from our perspective, there's two main reasons for that. Uh, we have seen over the course of the last four years uh, a, a real growth and maturity of ICANN as an institution. In large part, we think it's because of the affirmation of commitments that was signed with ICANN that created these multi-stakeholder reviews. Uh, the, head of, the current head of NTIA, John was my boss at one point before, so the current head of NTIA, Larry Strickling, uh, has served on two of these review teams, and we think ICANN's made tremendous progress in its improvements in accountability and transparency. And another uh, reason for our timing is what we're seeing in the international community with broader acceptance of the multi-stakeholder model. So these are the motivations for why we did what we did and why we did it now. Um, but, again, all we've done is ask ICANN to convene stakeholders to develop a proposal, and ICANN has started that conversation in Singapore um, two weeks ago, and maybe Jamie will speak to that. Uh, Jamie, I want to get your comments, obviously, on what Fiona just described. But I also think it would be helpful if you would describe at a top level what precisely is it that – ICANN does uh, as through these contracts with the United States government, and what has been the U.S. government's role uh, in the day-to-day -day functioning of these uh, uh, of these contract functions, and how do you expect things uh, could change or would change if those contracts expire? Sure. So um, the first part of the question is easy. Um, what Fiona uh, accurately described, uh, what what they've done and what we've done, and um, Following their uh, the NTIA's announcement, uh, we uh, convened. We had our uh, big meeting in Singapore, and we began the consultation or the community dialogue on uh, on the transition. Since then, we've uh, posted some documents for community input uh, on both the scope of uh, uh, of the inquiry as well as the process uh, uh, going uh, going forward. Uh, we are very early on in this in this process. In fact, we're at the step where we're, uh, we've started a process to design a process that will result in the uh, in the outcome. So this is going to take um, a long time, and it's going to require uh, input from all interested stakeholders, including uh, including folks on the Hill. Um, to your question, uh, John, about the IANA functions, I'm glad you asked that because when this initially came out, there was a lot of misinformation that uh, somehow control of the Internet was at stake, um, that, you know, the United States was uh, was giving up control of the Internet to the U.N. or to Russia or, you know, uh, uh, and, and a lot of sort of black helicopter uh, theories. Um, it's it's easy to debunk that by uh, just a quick description of what the IANA functions are. Um, these are function. These are they're essentially three uh, three functions that are uh, deep deep down in the uh, internet uh, infrastructure. Uh, one of them is maintaining a, a table or uh, of uh, internet 
standards developed by the Internet Engineering Task Force. They develop the policies. We maintain the table. Another is allocating uh, large blocks of IP number uh, IP numbers to uh, regional bodies who uh, are membership-based organizations and, and further assign IP numbers to ISPs, uh, device manufacturers, etc. Um, the third function is the one that gets the most attention, and that's uh, um, maintaining the root zone file. The root zone file uh, at a very high level is basically a phone directory of uh, the top-level domain, so the, the strings to the right of the dot, so .com, .us, uh, along with the IP addresses of, uh, of, their, of their name servers. There are some 330 uh, and, and growing uh, top-level domains. These divide in between generic top-level domains, which are like .com, they're commercial, uh, uh, and, uh, and run pursuant to uh, or they're operated uh, under agreements that uh, the operators have with ICANN. Um, and then there's country code top-level domains. Uh, these are often sovereign-run uh, 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 domains like .uk, .fr, .us. And those, those sovereign countries are responsible for, the, for developing the policies that govern uh, those domains. So um, when, anyone, when any one of these operators want to make a change they, 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 uh, to, to, their, um, to their entry in the root zone file, they send a request to ICANN. Um, our IANA department takes that request, vets it, uh, then sends it to NTIA, who verifies uh, the request, uh, and then authorizes uh, VeriSign as root zone maintainer to uh, <coughs> update the root zone file, publish it, and uh, distribute it uh, uh, among the, uh, what are called the root servers, who are the 13 root servers who uh, maintain these files. Um, so, as you can see, these are not uh, these are not terribly sexy functions. These do not deal with content. So, so when people say that that ICANN controls the internet or NTIA using ICANN as its vehicle controls the internet, you're saying that actually no, that, That's that, that nobody controls the internet, but that there are these these core functions. Steve, you've been around this for a very long time, and you've been commenting on these issues. And while I think the you know, Jamie's point that this isn't really a function of control. These are important functions, and there are opportunities that if they were to be uh, manipulated for parochial or uh, some other purposes, that there, there is a, an, that is an area of concern. So what do you think about the most recent announcement? What do you think about the the transition of ICANN over time, and what should we expect as, and what should what should the the user community and the people here whose members are concerned about this right. think about this transition, and what are some of the the touchstones that they should look for going forward? Yeah, with apologies for those who uh, happen to have seen the commerce hearing last week. I think it's so much easier to start with a simple analogy to understand what's being transitioned right now. So, if you think about it, the U.S. invented the labeling system for the internet. And think of that as a as a car that we built in the 1990s, the very best time of American car manufacturing. And the license plate reads IANA, it's IANA. And then in 1998, our government, having invented the car and set it up, realized it was not appropriate for a single government to control every element of how it runs, so we needed a designated driver. 
that was other than the U.S. government. And we created ICANN, Jamie's organization, in 1998 to be that designated driver. We handed Jamie the keys and uh, let him drive the car with gradually greater amounts of independence. And the U.S. government kept an eye on both the conduct of the driver as well as how well the car was taken care of. We did that through a period of reviews, through a joint partnership arrangement, a memorandum of understanding. And then in 2009, came up with something called the Affirmation of Commitments. Um, Fiona had a large hand in developing it. It's an outstanding document that for the first time required ICANN to conduct these detailed reviews of its conduct on things like security and stability of the Internet. Details review of the new top-level domains that are coming out that John described. And Together, the keys and the independence didn't fully convey that car to ICANN. It's as if the U.S. government continued to hold the title to that car. So the prospect of the announcement on March 14th is that the Commerce Department intends to sign that title over to someone at the first available date for that is likely to be September of 2015, but it could go longer if they're not ready. And the real question that Who's this title going to be signed over to? Because the title itself has a powerful impact. It's not just the three functions that Jamie described. There's really a fourth function, and it's the function of accountability. And the fact that we held the title all these last 16 years means that this 16-year-old entity, ICANN, knew it had better take care of accountability, had better take care of the affirmation of commitments and do a good stewardship job, or the title and the car would have been taken away. So sooner or later, we were going to have to relinquish this title. There's no question about that. I think the perfect storm of political timing, unfortunately, has forced our hand to do it early this year. But we'll cover that later on. But I do think you understand that the accountability that is imposed by us holding the title is the trickiest thing to replace, John, once we turn this over to ICANN, if, in fact, ICANN ends up being the one to get it. So uh, I appreciate the props. That's pretty cool. Uh, but it is, uh, the analogy of a title is a legal instrument. Uh, and so if one legal instrument is going to be allowed to lapse, are there any thoughts or concepts of what alternative legal instruments that might be executed between ICANN and other private entities or the U.S. government and other entities? You know, uh, David, you're going to uh, this Brazilian meeting uh, where... The, the stakeholders are supposed to begin talking about these issues. Uh, are those sorts of alternatives likely to be a subject of the discussion, alternative legal instruments that uh, will bring accountability to whatever institution is in charge of executing the IANA functions? Well, there, there have been a wide range of different proposals um, generally thought of in terms of Internet governance writ large, with the notion being that the Internet has become so important that we need to figure out how governments who only typically operate within particular limited geographic uh, operations can somehow come together to uh, create and impose global rules. There's equally, there's equally well um, uh, those who are afraid that uh, some governments will use the technology to uh, – impose and enforce rules that control content in a way that the U.S. government role has helped uh, to provide. It might be useful to to go back and ask ourselves, how could we have gotten in a situation where um, ICANN was allowed to uh, make rules without 
direct uh, government uh, regulation of everything they do? And the answer to that is that, and I, <clears throat> I should disclose I represented Network Solutions when the first contracts that established ICANN were negotiated. The, there was really one key only that was given to this driver, which was uh, the a contractual agreement by Network Solutions to abide by future ICANN policies if they were supported by a consensus among the affected parties and they are, were only on topics uh, the global resolution of which is necessary to assure operation of the domain name system. So it was quite logical at the outset of ICANN to contemplate that this would become a private sector standard-making kind of activity because it was never intended to or desired to be a general-purpose regulation of the Internet. And to the U.S. government's credit, that has pretty much been the way things have stood, but... Um, because ICANN has the last word on what gets added to the root, and that's really, I think, an additional, uh, I don't know if you'd call that an IANA function or an ICANN function, but fundamentally, because ICANN can decide when to create a new TLD, new top-level domain, it can decide and has decided what contractual conditions to impose on new top-level domains. And... Um, in some cases, it has imposed conditions that were not the result of a consensus process in the uh, bottom-up kind of consensus uh, way. So that has led some people to suggest that an ICANN newly freed from any government control should be subject to uh, some kind of constraint on what it can do, accountable to someone for not abusing its power. Um, I personally think that the best way to do that would be for ICANN to sign a contract with some third party promising not to regulate content and not to uh, make rules on behaviors that, on which there's no global consensus. The Syracuse Internet Governance Project has made a proposal to accomplish this by taking the domain name registries and all of the country code and GTLD registries and creating a body that would uh, structurally separate the IANA functions and enter into a contract with ICANN. Um, I'm not sure whether ICANN will consider that one of the possible um, uh, uh, proposals to be considered as part of this consensus process. Let me, let me, ask, uh, let me ask Tom something. So, Tom, IPI has as sort of its... Uh, its one of its touchstones, limited government and free markets, and we are at our core talking about the United States government stepping away from uh, its contractual role with ICANN. Uh, there has been a great deal of discussion and concern that the, the primary function of the United States standing in this contractual role is that it prevented any other governmental or intergovernmental body from assuming such a role. But I think we've heard from a number of the panelists, and it's clearly something that's been out in the press, this concern that without some sort of oversight, the accountability of ICANN cannot be guaranteed. So what are some of the other contractual or legal structural uh, uh, documents or, or agreements that can be put in place 
There's all sorts of ways that different private institutions are accountable to other private institutions by contract. Uh, I think that's well understood and not very complicated. But it sounds like this is is complicated. Does it need to be that complicated? Um, I, I think it's very complicated, and you're right. Uh, uh, personally and, and institutionally, we tend to not be big trusters of government. I guess here it's a question of who do you trust the least. Uh, accountable or unaccountable private organizations or governments. You know, the uh, the title of the panel today asks a question, is this a good idea? And I think it would probably be a very boring panel if all five of us answered that question with yes. So allow me to answer that question with a conditional no. Uh, I'm very familiar with an institution that was set up a number of years ago outside of the U.N. system to perform an obscure and highly technical function for the world and that's the World Intellectual Property Organization. It was set up to administer treaties. It was outside of the UN. Uh, you know, Steve, at an event that was held by the Internet Caucus earlier this year, you were challenged to answer the question, name for me anything that's been taken over by the UN in the last 50 years. Well, I have an answer, and that's WIPO. That's the World Intellectual Property Organization. Again, set up to do something highly technical and obscure outside of the UN system, but eventually global political pressure forced WIPO into the international system. And it is a far less effective organization today than it was when it was outside of the United Nations. And there's a reason for that. I should say that for over 10 years, I've been a participant in a number of these organizations, most notably WIPO as an accredited NGO, also the World World Health Organization, also the ITU accredited on an ad hoc basis. And, and what we have seen in these organizations is once, once an institution of global governance is created, and I agree with you that it is, a, it is a gross distortion to say that what we're talking about here is surrendering control of the Internet to the UN, that is most notably not happening now. It is not happening now. The question is, are the intermediate steps that we're taking today, are we losing the safeguards that could make that happen at some indefinite point in the future? What happens in these global governance organizations is that issues that are entirely unrelated to the organization end up coming to bear. You will have a situation where uh, countries like Brazil or Argentina will be frustrated with the United States because they're not getting what they want from us at the WTO, they're not getting relief on agriculture subsidies, and so they will decide then, well, we can't get what we want from you at WTO, but we can make your life very difficult in other forums. And so once you cross that line and once you create these international governance organizations, the, 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 the game is up and you're in serious trouble. Now, I'm going to say again, that is not what is happening now. That is not what's happening now. The question is, are we setting aside safeguards now that prevent that from happening? We staved off at the last ITU meeting. Uh, a majority of countries at the last ITU meeting favored creating international governance organizations for the United Nations, and we were able to stave that off, but we were in the distinct minority. One should ask the question, why were we able to stave that off? Was it moral authority? Well, we've, the NSA has undermined a great deal of our moral authority these days by undermining some of our declared values. So what's left? Let me lay on the table that it's possible that one of the reasons we were able to stave off for now, that push for international governance, was because we still controlled the most basic, most critical functions. Not We don't control the Internet, but we control the trump card. We control the title. We control the crown jewels. 
You know, when I was in high school in the 70s, we used to write in our notebooks trite, naive phrases like, if you love something, let it go, and if it, if it comes back to you, it's yours forever. You let this go, and it does not come back. And so my challenge to the other folks on the panel is explain to me the mechanism by, by which when you relinquish control, you still have control. That's my question. At the event in January that the Internet Caucus sponsored, the current president of ICANN used the word superb. He said that the United States had performed superbly the functions of safeguarding these functions. So what is the compelling reason for taking this risk when up to this point ICANN itself grants that we are doing a superb job? I want to get Fiona's thoughts on that. But I also want to ask a question in terms of how strong actually is our ability to hold on to these functions, you know, uh, in a very real way. While there are contracts between entities, the functions reside within ICANN not just because the United States government has a contract with ICANN, but because the rest of the global Internet community agrees that they will look to ICANN to perform these functions. Uh, what would, you know, we, we did have this exercise at the uh, uh, the World Congress where uh, we narrowly avoided a, uh, a treaty-making agreement within the UN. But if we were to go to the plenipotentiary or another intergovernmental forum and just lose the vote and the rest of the world says, you know what, no longer look to ICANN for these functions. There's a new office in Geneva. It's under the ITU, and it's going to perform the IANA functions. And if uh, you know a majority of the the rest of the the stakeholders <coughs> agreed to point in that direction, what what's what is there to stop that from happening? So maybe before I get to that, maybe there's I just from listening to the comments so far, there's some level setting of facts that need to happen in terms of what the IANA functions actually are, who the customers of the IANA functions are, and what we actually do at NTIA. And with respect to what happened at the ITU uh, in Dubai in 2012, when we actually lost a vote. So 89 countries signed a treaty and 55 didn't. There is a treaty that split the world. So, I mean, I think there's a little bit of a clarification that needs to happen. So um, for those of you not familiar with ICANN and the Internet Domain Name System, it's a fun-filled world of acronyms. Um, more than you could ever imagine. So I think that's part of We're the challenge. We're going to have a strict limit on acronyms. Yes, that's part of the challenge here. So the IANA functions are simply the administration of three databases. So these three databases make the domain name system interoperable. A domain name is simply the name you type that connects you to an IP number so you can resolve Internet service. I mean, there's some basics that need to sort of get out here. What ICANN does as the IANA functions operator is it updates three databases on behalf of three different customers. NTI is not a customer of these services. We are not the policymaker of these services. It's a very confusing structure, I, I admit. But we have let a contract for the performance of functions for third parties. I can implement what those third parties ask them to do. NTIA does not intervene in any of that process. All NTIA does is make sure that ICANN has followed the process of the third parties that are the customers of this service. What we practically do in a, in a practical manner with respect to the root zone is review a template to make sure a process has been followed. We do not exercise judgment, and we do this in a neutral way. We have said that whatever replaces us in any way needs to maintain that neutral management of the system by maintaining the openness of the Internet. 
So just to be clear, I, I'm a little confused about all these different components to it, but Jamie down there representing ICANN does specifically what three other third parties or groups of parties ask ICANN to do. Our role has been over the years to just make sure that this process has been followed, keeping in mind NTI inherited this relationship in 1997 when it was decided that we were going to privatize the management of the domain name system to introduce competition into the system. At the time, Network Solutions, where you were, was a monopoly provider under a series of DARPA and ARPA grants. So this entire system of ICANN was to introduce competition and consumer choice and innovation. That's what this has been about. The IANA functions contract that NTIA administers with ICANN was to facilitate that transition and was supposed to have been done in a two-year period. So let's just put some of the facts, and hopefully that's helped sort of uh, understand what some of this is about. Because I'm hearing a lot of contracts and contracts and legal stuff because there's terminology. But the reason we do this and the reason we believe in this is that we believe in the multi-stakeholder model. The Internet was not developed because governments allowed it to develop. The Internet was developed through a permissionless system, and it's governed in a permissionless way. That's what this is all about. couple of observations about that, and I want to get Jamie's uh, views on this and maybe uh, from Steve as well. Uh, when you describe it as ICANN is effectively the service provider to three other customers, and they are just simply providing these very basic technical functions, uh, ICANN seems to have grown well beyond, as an institution, uh, a, a technical service provider. You know, people use the, the analogy of it's just the phone book. You know, if it's just the phone book, you'd think you'd have a handful of guys with ink-stained fingerprints and a dusty old office somewhere cranking out the phone books. But it seems that there is something much more involved in that. Uh, and we talk about the, the multi-stakeholder community and that uh, we should simply turn all this over to the multi-stakeholder um, are all stakeholders uh, equally situated, and do they all have the same credibility on preserving some of these issues? I think is something that is worth exploring. You know, we talked about the United States government set this up in 1998, has executed its stewardship for 15 years, uh, given any opportunity to interfere in this process, has you know, manifestly not done so. So. Uh, couple things. Jamie, I want to get your view on, you know, what else is ICANN doing besides these three uh, (coughs) services? And then I'd like to hear from a Steve and Tom on, you know, uh, if there are these other things that are going on, uh, how do we make sure that they they, they continue to fit into this private sector model? Sure. So, uh, as you you say, we we coordinate uh, uh, the uh, performance of these technical functions um, under the contract. We also, the second thing that we do is we facilitate the development of policy related to uh, these functions. So, for example, the new GTLD program was related, developed by the other part of ICANN, uh, that uh, the large part of ICANN, where, where the multi-stakeholder community uh, participates um, very actively, um, and that was, uh, they developed the, the, the policies that would apply to, to uh, TLD operators. Uh, same thing when we introduced uh, internationalized domain names, which are domain names that uh, are written in, in scripts other than, the, the, other than Latin. Uh, that started out as a policy development on, by the CCTLDs. Uh, and in, in conjunction with the, the Governmental Advisory Committee. 
So, uh, but this brings a different issue, which which a number of, of uh, people touched on already, which is accountability. Um, and want to clarify uh, one thing, which is the ICANN, uh, the IANA functions uh, uh, agreement does not provide for accountability for ICANN in general. It is limited to ICANN's uh, performance of the IANA functions. It has never served as leverage or as stopgap, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, a backstop for ICANN's uh, uh, operations in, in other areas. What is responsible uh, for that is uh, the uh, – there are a number of reviews, but um, most notably is the affirmation of commitments, which we entered in into 2009 and allows for a multi-stakeholder review, as was described before, of a lot of the different things that ICANN is either doing or, 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 or responsible for. And uh, that has been uh, instrumental in, um, in uh, improving, enhancing ICANN, as uh, Fiona mentioned, uh, and it will continue. And, in fact, on the same day in Singapore that uh, we commenced the uh, uh, dialogue on transitioning NTIA's role, we also began a uh, community dialogue consultation on improving and enhancing uh, ICANN's accountability uh, mechanisms, including the affirmation of commitments. So uh, that's the place to go to if you, if for for stakeholders who are concerned, should be concerned about ICANN's accountability, they shouldn't look to the IANA co- uh, contract or the transition process as a means of enhancing ICANN's accountability. See, what do you think about the? the intersection of policy development and these technical functions. On the one hand, uh, as an institution, it's supposed to be simply uh, executing the, the wishes of its, of its clients. Uh, but on the other hand, it's developing policies that could directly impact the ability of those client institutions to, to operate. Uh, what do you think about that, and what do you think, how should we think about that as we move forward from the current state to whatever comes after? Thanks, John. It's so important to, to somehow make things more real for people and put it in terms of what do we care about as Americans, as citizens, as Internet, Internet users around the world. And uh, unfortunately, all of us on this panel and those of us in the community have really jumped the gun. The um, announcement that Fiona's group made was only a, less than a month ago. But already, people are designing the replacement for the mechanism of U.S. oversight to this point. In fact, we have a year and a half and potentially two or four more years on top of that to design the mechanism. Up front, what we should do is divine and devise and define what the criteria are to know when we've discovered an appropriate mechanism to replace the accountability and oversight provided by the U.S. government. And um, I think there's a growing conversation in this town and on the Hill that we ought to take a look at what we really care about. What are the scenarios or stresses that we need to be sure that any new mechanism will hold up at least as well as the U.S. stewardship has for the last 16 years. So we really have, unfortunately, put the cart way in front of the horse right now, and it would be better if we boiled it down to things we care about. I'll give you three quick examples, John. Um, a number of us have talked about this affirmation. It's a fabulous document, and it requires reviews. Um, Fiona's boss and uh, Jamie just now rest on the affirmation as the anchor of accountability, and the presence of the affirmation is what should give all of us peace with the surrendering or turning over this title. 
and yet the affirmation is cancelable by ICANN with 120 days' notice. And the previous chairman of ICANN told a group of us in Europe in 2010 that he thought it was a temporary document and was looking forward to terminating it. Fortunately, we have new management at ICANN and a new board that doesn't feel that way, but we may not have the same people there forever. If, if ICANN can walk away from the affirmation and the affirmation is cited as our accountability anchor, simple solution will be let's find a way to bake it into the DNA of ICANN. So it's not revocable, for instance. Let's make it dynamic so that it can create new reviews and retire old ones. So I'm getting to the notion of let's decide what are the keys. Other stresses could be failure of ICANN because of financial or legal problems. If it were to fail, who would come in and rescue the root if ICANN is no longer a responsible steward for the security and stability of the root of the Internet? Another one might be what if governments increase their power at ICANN by changing their own internal procedures so that the advice they provide to the ICANN board would have more persuasion and might actually move censorship from the edge of the Internet, where it lives today, to the core. And again, these are scenarios that are not probabilities. I'm not suggesting this is what is going to happen. But like Tom, we're only prudent to suggest plausible problems that would be avoided under the current structure and acknowledge that the U.S. has to give up this title for reasons we're happy to get into. This is an inevitable decision. It's not something we can defer, deny, and delay forever. But we ought to have a new mechanism that would be able to stand up to government encroachment within the ICANN institution, stand up to encroachment that comes from without ICANN, like from the ITU. And I think we can do that, but let's start defining the problems we want to solve before we suggest what structure we all prefer. John, can I just underscore that uh, with a couple of examples? Um, I've already expressed my skepticism, so one way for me to translate my skepticism into action is go slow. Uh, ICANN has not shown, with apologies, ICANN has not shown an instinct for accountability over the years. In fact, I was not in Singapore, but it was widely reported that one of the initial proposals that was put on the table received aggressive pushback for not having enough accountability and had to be withdrawn. So I think we do need to go very slow. Well, that's how it was reported, but I was not there. Uh, we need to go very slow, and we need to be very cautious because, again, perhaps we'll get into this, but I have yet to have explained to me how once you relinquish control of something, you can retain control, or once you relinquish control, uh, you can get control back. The pressures on these organizations are are consistent, they are escalating, and they are omnipresent to have to give governments greater control. And the way governments accomplish this is through staffing decisions. They put pressure on staffing decisions. They replace American engineers with other engineers. I've seen this happen at various international organizations. And so the question is, what is standing between us and this incredible pressure to give international governments more control? We should, we should be very cautious, and we should go very slowly and very deliberately. Give Jamie a chance to, uh, to respond to that, and then I've got something for uh, for David. So I, I, we couldn't agree more about in terms of uh, taking the time to to get this right. There is no deadline on this, and again, urge everyone who's uh, you know who's got a stake in this, who is all of us, uh, to participate in both in in both um, consultations um, regarding the the thing that was there, there was uh, our CEO shared a uh, a, a grid with stakeholders to get their feedback on it and then later and it took their feedback made changes and then in, in, uh, d uh, displayed that at the uh, the following day at the ICANN uh, at the ICANN meeting 
Um, but but your 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 larger point about uh, making sure that this thing is bulletproof is absolutely is absolutely correct. Um, you know, there's a view that the multi-stakeholder model itself uh, is a check against anyone taking it, uh, taking it over, but clearly that's not enough for something that's important. Uh, David, I want to access some of your experience as a lawyer and a scholar on these issues going back on and your history of being around when some of the original contracts were being executed and get some thought on what sort of contractual accountability uh, solutions that, that you may uh, have thought of. But I also want to go to this meeting in Brazil that you're going to be participating in and also tie in together this concept of stakeholders and not every stakeholder having the same degree and level of credibility on a commitment to, a commitment to openness and a lack of government involvement in the Internet. Uh, this high-level global multi-stakeholder meeting is being convened in Brazil under the auspices of the Brazilian Ministry of Communications, I believe. Uh, Brazil doesn't have a great track record on, uh, uh, on its commitment to this. In fact, Brazil was, uh, as far as I know, the only democracy that was aligned with uh, some other great proponents for free speech and an open Internet, China and Iran and Syria and others going back. The first groups to really raise the issue that we don't think the U.S. government should have a role, but in fact there should be a U.N.-sponsored intergovernmental role. So um, give me your thoughts on that. I don't want to put you on the spot before you travel to Brazil and sit down with the minister and have to uh, uh, answer to what you've said here. But how should we think about the fact that this first multi-stakeholder meeting is being convened by a uh, in a country and by a government that doesn't have the same level of commitment that the United States has 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 demonstrated? And what do you think about the the legal structures for accountability that we should be thinking about? Well, I would say first of all, I believe it's being convened both by the Brazilians and by uh, ICANN, in effect. So that, uh, and second, I would say. The essence of the multi-stakeholder idea uh, is that everyone is entitled to come and contribute their views. And um, that's very much in line with the American value of consent of the governed, in effect. So I think there is, some, there, there, there is a camp of people who will be at, in Brazil arguing that the governments should come in and collectively regulate the net in some way. And... I believe the purpose of this meeting is to, in part, see whether there is substantial enthusiasm for another model. The one best example at the moment would be a, an ICANN-like model in which governments can come and give their view, but anyone else can as well. And in many cases, um, the individuals in the private sector or civil society will turn out to be a better source of ideas and, and, um, contributions uh, with regard to what, where the uh, decisions should be made. In terms of how you make that accountable, it's not enough to just have everyone show up and promise to listen to them. I don't think it's, it's not even enough to make a decision at the level of a board and then explain how you did it. You have to give some real power to the individuals who are affected by the rules. And um, in the U.S., we do that by allowing Congress to pass a regulatory statute that constrains what an agency can do. 
in effect. We don't have the equivalent here, but we could globally have give anybody who's adversely affected by a decision made in the ICANN process if they believe the process was not adequately followed or if it was abused in some way that we wouldn't want one of Steve's stress tests. We could give, we could create a process, probably an arbitration kind of judicial process, where someone could bring that case. That's one uh, example of something that was contemplated at the outset of ICANN's creation, and there was a committee established to try to establish a, a, uh, a judicial branch of ICANN. Maybe that's a thing that should be discussed. So there are two different divides here. There are those who are worried about governments coming in and dominating ICANN and, and regulating content in a way that I think everybody would in the U.S. would find very uh, uncomfortable. But there's also a need credibly to constrain an ICANN that is essentially accountable only to itself. And um, so I think we're having two different conversations at the same time. Let me, uh, let me ask Steve about that. right that we should work through the possible scenarios. Right. Uh, let me ask Steve, uh, and in particular given uh, where we sit today in our audience, there have been a number of pieces of legislation introduced to try and uh, address some of these concerns or grapple with these same issues. Uh, maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about what you know of each of those, or at least the general concept that they're trying to answer and uh, where that stands. Thanks, John. So three representatives, three bills in the House right now. Uh, Representative Shimkus has a bill that was marked up and uh, reported out of an e-commerce uh, commerce subcommittee yesterday. It's uh, They called the dot-com bill, but it calls for the General Accounting Office to do a report within one year after the proposal for transition has been received by NTIA. So that report then would assess whether the proposal met the principles and report, and report back on Congress whether it's appropriate to transition. Another bill by Representative Kelly suggests that any transition would have to be authorized by Congress at the time in which the transition plan were complete. And the third by Representative Duffy is an outright prohibition. It says that NTIA may not relinquish control of the IAN authority. I think it's right for Congress to ask questions and express concerns but NetChoice and members of our industry do not support any of these pieces of legislation since they head in the direction of deny and delay when it's very easy to channel that energy, those comments and concerns, and just channel them straight into the area of defining our concerns, our stress tests, and our scenarios. And we shouldn't wait until a year after the proposals are in to define our concerns. That's like giving people a test and waiting till a year later to tell them what's going to be on the test. Let's d define those concerns now. Take the energy that you feel in your, in your offices on the Hill and turn that into articulating scenarios that we can design around and evaluate proposals as they come back in. But let's not think that it's appropriate, John, to deny and defer and delay. There's really a perfect storm of circumstances that brought us to this. Uh, the pressure from behind on the Snowden revelations, they have nothing to do with the domain name system. But it's pressure that was nonetheless powerful. And it energized those other governments who have long resented the U.S. legacy role. And they've inflated the importance of that role because it has really been a very symbolic and low-level technical role that everyone acknowledges has been superb stewardship. But nonetheless, a lot of pressure coming up because of the Brazil meeting in two weeks and then later this year when the United Nations meets. That's that perfect storm of pressure that led the administration to make this decision now. 
we need to make make progress down the road of defining the right kind of a transition. And I don't think it's going to serve the interests of citizens of free expression of the multi-stakeholder model or American business to try to deny, delay, deny, or box that in. Fiona, does the uh, administration have a view on any of these pieces of legislation? Sure. Um, uh, since Secretary Strickling was actually asked this in the hearing yesterday, and just to reconfirm that, you know, we're obviously fully committed to a thoughtful process to developing a transition plan, but we've actually stated our opposition to this bill. We think it sends the wrong signal to the international community and the multi-stakeholder community that we've actually asked to take on this task. So we don't think it's particularly constructive. Um, I do think, you know, and as we've said over the last few weeks as well, the ideas of stress tests that Steve has suggested, not just here in Washington, but in the ICANN session in Singapore, you know, we think is a good idea and something that should be considered as part of the process. And we've been supportive of that, I think, as has ICANN. It's included in their comment, their documents after comment now. Fiona, if I could pick up on that. I'm a programmer, not a government guy or a lawyer. And as a programmer, we would stand to build software. We would never build it based on principles. We need exact scenarios of what it is our users will do with the software, things they're supposed to do and not supposed to do, so that we can code to it. And um, you and your boss came up with some helpful principles on what this transition has to look like. And the principles are good as far as they go, but they're not concrete enough. They're not plausible. They're not... Um, specific enough for us to design proposals that will meet them even after the transition. Like, for instance, you can say it's a principle, using my car analogy, it's a good principle to have your teenager practice safe driving in winter weather. Yeah, but where do they go with that? What's a stress test? A stress test would be putting them in a car where the back end is swinging to the right on an icy highway and understanding and teaching them how to react. That's a stress test, a scenario. It's that level of specificity we need to attach to this to come up with a good answer. Jamie, uh, I think uh, David talked about some potential solutions that are out there in the, the conditions that NTIA attached to their willingness to uh, allow the IANA contracts to lapse. They put some things in place saying there are certain things that we won't allow to have happen. And now... ICANN is convening the, the stakeholder community, as it were, to examine what the, the best uh, end state of this transition would be. You know, David raised this, uh, this issue that's been brought up in Syracuse and other places, uh, separating IANA from ICANN in some way. Does ICANN view the, the scope of what it is currently engaged in to include a range of options as broad as that, or does ICANN have a view that certain outcomes uh, shouldn't be considered and that there is a a core uh, uh, structure that's going to be in place and that what we're engaged in now is details? Uh, excellent question. So uh, as part of one of the documents we just put out is a scoping document, uh, and it uh, delineates what – uh, what is uh, the consultation is supposed to be about. Um, and as NTIA's uh, document makes clear, uh, it, it deals with what's on the table. What's on the table is replacing NTIA's stewardship role. Um, and uh, we put out a, sp a scoping document so as in, 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 for a number of reasons, and we ran it by the U.S. government. The U.S. government uh, approved that and the, and the others. But the, the purpose of the scoping document is uh, 
to limit the discussion to what's really at stake and not bring on every issue like net neutrality and uh, content regulation and uh, all kinds of other things that uh, um, that people who are less engaged, uh, who don't have the privilege of being engaged in ICANN matters on a daily basis, um, you know, who are you know are uh, are not uh, uh, aware of. So, um, so that's so. Now, the, on the other hand, it is an open it is an open process, and people can and will uh, make whatever contributions. And this is not up to me or ICANN. It's it's up to the multi stakeholder community. Uh, to determine uh, what ultimately comes out of this. ICANN was charged by our Commerce Department to be the, um, the convener, the organizer of this global multi-stakeholder process to design the transition mechanism. So in that role, the measure of scoping is, is, is quite powerful, quite compelling. If, in fact, the scope, the limited scope that Jamie just described were to limit all the conversations for the next year and a half, then ICANN would have succeeded in evading this discussion of what holds them to this infamous affirmation of commitments because the scoping itself ruled out discussion of their agreement with NTIA, the affirmation of commitments. That may have been an oversight, and we can correct it, as Jamie said, and I'm glad to do that. We, we, we need to understand that the accountability to the affirmation is something that was an understa- understood and undergirded by this title that we're about to sign over in the next year and a half to two years. So let's keep that scope document uh, in draft form so that we can take care of things like fixing the ICANN bylaws with respect to something like the affirmation, fix the ICANN bylaws with respect to GAC advice, government advice, so that only a consensus advice would carry the deference of ICANN. Steve, if I, if I could, I completely agree those are important conversations to have, and but they're going to – they're being – undertaken in the consultation on accountability. Fiona, what, what, I mean, they're, they're referring to your work product, so what do you think about that? Yeah, I think um, maybe to add, I was going to maybe go down to the point that Jamie's doing, and I think there's a little bit of confusion because there's going to be two processes, and right now there's only one document out, and I think that's somewhat unfortunate because it's providing a lack of clarity, but the proposal I can put out for comment clearly indicates in the introduction that there are these broader ICANN accountability issues. And, you know, Steve's been very good about pointing out our role is very limited, our stewardship role is very limited, but we understand the symbolic nature of it, and we understand the need to have a conversation about ICANN as ICANN accountability. And, you know, we're very much looking forward to that and, you know, looking for the process that's going to be taken up as a bottom-up nature in the ICANN community on that. And we'll be actively participating in that conversation. I mean, I can guarantee you that for sure. This is a topic near and dear to um, the, the hearts of many people at NTI, in particular, as Secretary Strickling. Yeah. So that will be happening. And I think once the other document comes out and we can see the clear tracks that are separate but parallel and related happening, it'll be easier to have a more fulsome conversation. Um, well, we are obviously convened here uh, on behalf of the Congressional Internet Caucus, and I wanted to make sure that there was an opportunity for the staffers and the representatives in the room uh, to take advantage of the panel that's been pulled together directly. So if there are any questions, uh, I'd certainly encourage, and we'd be happy to uh, have the panel engage with particular questions that you have. Got something in the far back?
we've all gotten into a debate about what the right answer is going forward, how we should do this. But we haven't asked all the question of, of whose authority is this? Well, what gives uh, the NTIA the right to decide that they're going to give up control over our dinner? Legally speaking, the GAO in 2000 looked at this concluded that they weren't sure whether the IANA functions constituted property and decided it wasn't necessary to resolve the question at that time. Subsequent to that, in 2003, the Ninth Circuit decided, which had not been decided before, that domains are property. So you would think that if domains are property, the right to control domains, the IANA functions, are also property. Now, if that's true, the Constitution requires that Congress decide who to, who and when to, to whom to transfer uh, U.S. government property. So even if Congress does nothing today, even if they don't pass any of these bills that have mentioned, and if the NTIA goes forward and transfers control of this, there will be litigation on this point. And if it is indeed property, the transfer will be void. So the NTIA will have started a process that has been bitterly acrimonious, replacing the previous bipartisan consensus against uh, the ITU's takeover with a clear division here. All because the NTIA didn't want to go to Congress and negotiate over this question, and because they were so sure of their legal analysis, which, by the way, they haven't shared with anybody else, that it's not property. So, well, let's, is yeah, is, what, is that the question? Yeah, the question is, is it property? What makes you so sure that it's not property? And if it is property, or if there's even a risk that the courts will rule that it is property, why didn't you go to Congress to negotiate over this beforehand I'll start with uh, Fiona, whether or not you got any legal analysis inside the administration that goes directly to this point. So I think there's a couple of things that need to be clarified in the statement that you made. So the, first of all, the IANA functions themselves do not uh, let people designate who has new GTLDs or provides TLDs. That's the ICANN policymaking process. That's not the IANA functions in and of themselves. And I think the J report wasn't specific to the IANA functions as well. So reviewing that might be um, a useful starting point. I think from our perspective, um, you know, we do not consider these property or assets, and this is why we've taken the step the way that we've taken it. And uh, obviously, yes, we've conducted our own internal. Any other? Tom? It's a good question, uh, if only because I can assure you that Congress is going to assert its prerogative here. There's just there's simply no question about that. And if we want to rely on Steve's admittedly general illustration of a title, uh, there is a very significant question as to whether the executive branch has the authority to do that, uh, particularly in light of Congress's frustration with the executive branch acting unilaterally in any number of ways. So this is going to be a fight, and if NTIA has legal analysis on this regard, they'd be better off releasing it sooner rather than later. I'd, I'd like to uh, <clears throat> just comment that the fact that a domain name is property does not mean that coordination among private parties to agree on what rules to follow <clears throat> in registering domain names is private property, much less government property. So uh, there are many, many examples of government deciding to defer to private sector initiatives when they're solving problems that maybe the government would have to otherwise work on, but which are being adequately handled. There are also instances in which the government decides not to defer when people are coordinating their activities in a way that harms the market, for example, antitrust regulation. Neither of those really relate to what's property. They relate to what kind of cooperation among private sector actors should be encouraged and allowed and supported by the government and not taken over by a government function. 
So I disagree with the premise in the question. I would just also observe that there is no affirmative step that needs to be taken for this to conclude. This is a contract that expires by its terms. And I don't know if the allowing a contract to expire by its terms constitutes some sort of transfer of property. But I think it's a good point that this is an issue that's been raised repeatedly. People in the press have gone back to the uh, the GAO study. And I think, you know, if for no other purpose than to bring some degree of clarity to this discrete issue, uh, it may make sense at some point for it to be uh, tackled directly. Steve? Um, not an attorney like Barron and so many others on the panel, so I can't speak to the notion of property here, but the optics are terrible, and it doesn't actually pass the sniff test to call it property. The root table is roughly 400 names and numbers. You can fit them on two, three pages of legal pad. So the name.com, and here's the number that reserves the zone for com, the name.bike, and who's running it, .gov, .mil. And so that is a table, and the IANA authority simply dictates who's in charge of managing and maintaining that table. So it's far, far be it for me to see that as property in any way. On the and table, yet the, the, table debate, is, the table is copied and mirrored that's right. Not just in all 13 locations around the world, but in hundreds and thousands of locations all over the world. Every so, ISP right. is Internet Service Provider, right. to avoid the acronym. But the, the question, the way Barron has put it, I mean, I realize it may be a, a tactically interesting thing to pursue to get into this um, balance of powers here in the U.S. government, but it sends the wrong signal to the world because it suggests that the U.S. regards the Internet name system as its property. And that is exactly what Brazil, Russia, India, China, and many other countries that were formerly our allies on this would point to as the reason that, yeah, see, it's clear. The U.S. never really was going to transition to multi-stakeholder after all. And it will actually make things far worse to embark on a property debate. Let's have the debate on problems that we want to solve and problems we want to avoid. But don't make it about property because the problems we want to avoid and the problems we want to solve – these scenarios or stress tests are shared by citizens and businesses all over the globe. They agree we want to make sure this thing stays secure. They want to keep censorship at the edge, if at all, and not let that censorship creep to the core. We have allies around the world on trying to come up with stress tests. We'll turn them into enemies by claiming that the Internet naming system is our property. We've got another question here. But, but how do we make sure that, you know, in a constitutional way, 
there is a good way to sort of reverse this once it's been written down into kind of let me first commend you for an admirable job of dealing with the pronunciation of my last name. Um, this is exactly my concern, and maybe it's because I'm a think tank person and, and, and not a government person, but I'm concerned about what happens 15 years from now. Uh, and I assure you, I mean, I would bet you a month's pay right now that 15 years from now, if we take this step, uh, governments will be in control of these things, and is, it is inexorable. The pressure will only ratchet up, and there is no way, there is no way that we, once you release it, that you can maintain control over it. I don't care what contracts are put in place. I don't care what promises and commitments are made. They will change over time due to, due to an enormous amount of pressure on one side of the equation and only engineers on the other side. You know, I... Uh, uh Get Fiona's reaction to that. I'd asked earlier, uh, we take a great deal of comfort in the existence of the U.S. contract now, but how really sticky is that? I mean, we don't have control in the way that one would think of control in sort of a, a legal or a factual way. We've got a series of agreements uh, that a very dispersed group of global actors have have consented to. Uh, how strong is the contract? So I think I first wanted to start with this clarification that I think John just did, which is we don't control ICANN. We don't control the Internet. No one does. Um, and it's really important as a fundamental position people understand that. As a second point of order, I think it's important to understand the multi-stakeholder model, whether it's ICANN or it's the Internet Engineering Task Force or another version of the multi-stakeholder model and how it actually works. But we keep talking about ICANN, and you, you sort of um, – I think it's, it's, it's far more complicated. So there's ICANN staff, as Jamie and the CEO and the board, and there's ICANN as an institution. And ICANN as an institution is made up of thousands of people that participate in a variety of different structures or supporting organizations or advisory committees. So in the context of the multi-stakeholder model at ICANN, governments participate through the Governmental Advisory Committee. NTI represents the U.S. government in that process. We're one of 133 governments that are members of this group. Um, generally 60 or 70 show up at meetings depending on what's happening, and we debate and decide the issues, and the Government Advisory Committee gives advice to the ICANN system or the ICANN board on public policy. Consensus advice of all the governments, when all the governments agree, is what has some kind of authority or, you know, standing in, in the ICANN community. The rest of the ICANN community includes major American corporations and civil society and stakeholders, and it's really a sight to see if you haven't seen it, but the idea that a group of bottom-up stakeholders are going to somehow let this be captured is just not possible in my mind, having worked and lived in the system and seen it for 15 years. The idea that we stress test to make that happen, absolutely, which is, again, why Steve's idea is a great one and one we've endorsed that stakeholders should take up as part of the process. But the multi-stakeholder community is literally thousands of people in a room talking through different issues and different constituency group and stakeholder groups talking through different things and actively participating in this process as governments as a stakeholder, but they are not above other stakeholders. And, again, major American corporations, civil society, US, other corporations, global companies are all very actively involved in this system. So I, I, I'm not familiar with the WIPO scenario. I, I'm, I'm familiar with the WIPO of today. Um, so I'm not quite sure what happened in the past. And I'm not uh, sure if, if that's comparable to what – 
the multi-stakeholder model is. And again, the reason we're such such strong supporters of this and one of the reasons we wanted to take this step was to, you know, recommit to the world that we really do believe in the multi-stakeholder model is that we think it's the best way for innovation and economic growth. That's why we do this. Get a quick response from Tom, and then I think we had uh, at least one more question. And while it is a different organization, all of those same multi-stakeholders are involved at the Internet Governance Forum, the IGF. And I was there in Rio in 2007 when the Russian, when the event was over and it had been proclaimed closed and we were all unplugging our laptops and the Russian delegate basically commandeered the podium and did a version of Khrushchev pounding his shoe on the podium and went on a rant about how it was critical that governments be given control of these functions. Those are all the same stakeholders right, so in a seven, different seven venue. Years later in the IGF, and the IGF is a multi-stakeholder forum for discussion that no government controls. Let's, uh, uh, that's, that's fun, but let's get over here. <laughs> I'm sorry, behind you. Nope, it's you. Uh, Philip Corwin, uh, former congressional staffer way back in my uh, sure. currently uh, work with a variety of clients uh, of the ICANN issues. Uh, part of the genius of ICANN has been private sector leadership, not just multi-stakeholder model, private sector leadership. And up to now, the role of governments has been, they haven't been equal stakeholders. They've been subordinate. They have merely an advisory role that the board can take or leave. Uh, I think that's going to change. Uh, the Montevideo statement that ICANN and the other uh, ISTER groups signed calls for uh, globalization of IDEANA function and ICANN with equal <coughs> roles for all stakeholders, including Governments. Uh, CEO Chahadi has talked about a locally equal stakeholder model referring to governments. I think politically, with the transition going on now, and frankly as a way to keep it from going to the ITU, that the role of the GAC is going to be in some way enhanced. Uh, there's us to talk about the affirmation of the uh, Is there a, uh, just so, two question? Yeah, We're going to get to some other folks too. The question is, uh, given the strong possibility that the role of governments within ICANN will be enhanced, will they will go from subordinate to at least equal with the other stakeholders as part of this transition, shouldn't one of the stress tests be to figure out how to limit it so that it doesn't go from that to some future scenario where governments try to become dominant? Uh, David, you have a thought on that? Um, well, e- even if the members of the Government Advisory Committee were to join in as equal equals in the policy development process, one of the principles is that um, you don't get a binding policy unless there's consensus, so that, in effect, any given group can have a, a, enough of a veto so that they have to be listened to. And it all turns on whether or not the board insists that there be a consensus before it adopts a policy and, and whether there's some way to challenge a board decision that was not so limited, where it took on itself the ability to bend to government pressure to make a policy. So I think the answer to the earlier question is separation of powers and the ability to bring a complaint to an independent judiciary. This is not a new set of issues for the American constitutional scheme, and I think we have some good models to draw. I think that's uh, uh, what you're getting in the questions that the panelists have had with one another and the questions that are coming from the audience really underscores that we are at a beginning state here. And uh, these are all precisely the kinds of issues that we're going to have to engage uh, to make sure that we we come to a conclusion that uh, 
wards against some of the worst outcomes that people are afraid of, but at the same time uh, answers enough of the question on our commitment to an ultimate private sector uh, management of these processes. I think there was a couple of questions over here. I'm going to let Tom take that. It'll be fun. I've been assigned a response. That's interesting. Um, the first time I ever went to a meeting of a United Nations organization, it was a five-day meeting, and they spent the entire first day giving speeches congratulating the chairman for being elected as chairman. That was day one of five. You're right. They're slow. Now, sometimes slow is good if people are trying to do bad things or, or cause mischief. But the design of these institutions, consensus is a device built for stalemate. And I've seen this happen so many times in these organizations uh, where, where the, the, the demand to achieve consensus means that nothing happens. And that means it is very easy to tie these organizations up in knots and to meet for literally years and not get anything done. It is very easy to bollocks things up in these organizations. If you want something done, A, don't give it to a bureaucracy, and B, for darn sure, don't give it to an international bureaucracy. John, if I could comment on that real quickly. Let's not be too optimistic. Our multi-stakeholder process at ICANN, which I've worked in for 12 years, we're not lightning fast either. It takes a lot of time to achieve consensus to changing a policy like launching new top-level domains. It took us, well, seven years. I think that's uh, Internet time when you compare it to the ITU. But it takes time, and there has to be um, competing needs to drive it along or else people would just give up. And the beauty of that process is that changes and improvements that are truly needed by a broad spectrum of world citizens and businesses and civil society and governments, those are the things that can survive running the gauntlet of a multi-stakeholder consensus process. And I would only close by saying that at the ITU, remember the rule, every country, no matter how small or how large, gets the same one vote. And the only entities in the room who can vote at the ITU and UN are governments. Anyone else in the room is just eye candy. They can't vote. So the multi-stakeholder process is antithetical to the notion of multi-nations where every nation gets one vote and the private sector gets no votes at all. And if I could just very quickly add, it is astonishing how often the U.S. ends up standing alone or almost alone in these organizations. Uh, the, the African bloc acts as a bloc. The, the Asian bloc acts as a bloc. Uh, Europe... Uh, group B, it's called internationally. Group B tends to promise the United States that they're going to be with them, and then when it actually comes down to, to the actual vote, they abandon them, whether it's out of colonial guilt 
they associate with the African group or whatever. Uh, Japan usually stands with us but won't stand up and advocate. So we almost always are grossly outnumbered at these international bodies. It, it's, it, that's just that's reality. So I'll get back to the audience. We have, uh, as our CEO testified yesterday, we have no intentions of moving uh, outside the United States. It's important to uh, uh, note that we have uh, hundreds, uh, maybe thousands of contracts um, uh, with registries and registrars um, that are uh, that are that are resign- executing in the United States. It makes no sense for us to uh, uh, to move out. However, I mean, we have offices around the world, but we are not no plans to move uh, headquarters anywhere. And there's no question that there's some comfort in the fact that this is a U.S. US based organization and subject to the laws of the United States and U.S. courts. I, I, I take great comfort in the fact that ICANN is based in the United States. The answer to the question is what can guarantee that that doesn't change? Nothing can guarantee that that doesn't change. And, and I want to offer, because I've been such a wet blanket, I want to, I want to offer a little bit of clarification on my perspective. Sometimes governments end up in situations where the best option is not on the table anymore. I mean, it may be that something like this is inevitable. My reaction to that is, A, we, we better be very careful, very cautious, and very deliberate and go slow if it's inevitable. And, B, I, I have to make the point that if it's inevitable, it's inevitable because of a failure of diplomacy, and it's inevitable because of a betrayal by the NSA. So I think just to comment on that, again, we're taking the final step in the 16-year process. That's why we're doing what we're doing. And the question of timing has to do with the maturity of ICANN and the global internet governance discussions and what we're seeing of more acceptance of this model. Again, this whole exercise has been about private sector leadership, multi-stakeholder development of policy, governing the internet in the same way that it's been developed and how it's why it's flourished and succeeded. This is what helps American customers. This is what helps American businesses. And this is what leads to broader economic growth globally. Just as a matter of fact. Other questions? Uh, Rob, I'm going to get a congressional quarterly. I'm just trying to reconcile this, uh, the difference between the commerce view that, that essentially the U.S. government still retains very little influence here or authority and also the view that if we give up this power, we could never get it back. So I guess I'm just wondering, does commerce have authority that it's not using right now? Or, or what essentially would we be giving up at this point that we wouldn't be able to get back that would be significant? So uh, go ahead. Uh, so uh, commerce has um, the authority under the IANA functions contract uh, both to act as a steward for uh, for the functions and then with respect to the root zone to play a, um, a, a verifying role. Um, it, those are uh, those are important functions and you know it is, has been discussed here. It's an important backstop. Um, so uh, the, your question your question about you know can it never be taken back? I mean I think that's something that is going to be the subject of. Yeah. Uh, of the uh, consultation. And let me try to respond this way. I've yeah, been let's, one uh, of the let's, chief- get, let's let Fiona, as the, the the holder of the contract as of now, 
uh, so get her perspective on that. Just to be clear, what we announced was our intent to take the final step in a 16-year privatization process. We put the four corners of a framework that we would like to see, and we've asked the multi-stakeholder community to have a conversation and come back to us with a proposal for transition. That's simply what we've done. We've done it halfway through the first term of a three-year contract, so that gives stakeholders 18 months to have a conversation. If for some reason stakeholders can't agree to a consensus proposal in terms of broad-based support, which is also one of our requirements, we have the option to extend this contract for two two-year terms. That is all we have done with this conversation. And uh, the questioner asked about is there some conflict of views as to whether it's just clerical or does it have this symbolic value with ICANN. I think we crossed that bridge a long time ago, and uh, Secretary Strickling said it this week, he said it last week in the hearing, that there is symbolic value to the U.S. being able to withhold that IANA contract from ICANN, and, and the U.S. government did so. In, in 2012, it decided that ICANN really wasn't being responsive to the requirements for running the IANA functions, and so they canceled the request for proposal to the RFP. They canceled ICANN came back with a better proposal, and they were given the contract six months later. So the contract has value. It's called symbolic or discipline value, to use the words of Secretary Strickling. And he is inviting all of us in the global stakeholder community to find a way to replicate the essential elements of that accountability in some other way. But the U.S. government won't be there to do that. So I don't think it's constructive to say we would maintain control or recover some kind of a control. That's probably not in the cards. We want to replicate the accountability discipline, symbolic value, if you will, but it won't be replicated by the U.S. reaching back in and taking the whole thing back. Well, I think this has been a, a very helpful and robust discussion at times. Uh, I think it's, it's clear that these are matters that are of great interest, not just to the Congress, but to stakeholders around the world and to industry and and citizens, and we're going to have to pull together all these disparate views into a process that I think over the next, whether it's 15 months or less or longer, to get to a place where I think we all agree that the, the operation of the status quo has been successful and something we want to preserve, but the legal structures that create that status are ones that we're going to have to be thoughtful and create a new a new model. And I think uh, the people in this panel have demonstrated a, a good ability to do that. So uh, thank the uh, the caucus again for convening this, and uh, wish everybody a good afternoon. Thank you.